Welcome to What Compassion Accomplishes, a podcast dedicated to sharing information, ideas, and resources about domestic abuse and sexual assault. The topics discussed in this podcast, including survivor stories, supportive services, and domestic abuse or sexual violence, can be difficult, and we urge you to listen with care. Our hosts are not licensed counselors or mental health professionals. If you or someone you care about have experienced domestic, dating, or sexual violence, please call the WCA's 24-hour hotline at 208-343-7025 or the National Domestic Violence Hotline 1-800-799-7233. You can also find more resources in the description of this podcast. I am Corey Michaels with Auction Frogs, along with Chris Davis, WCA Communication Manager. How are you today? I'm doing well, Corey. Thank you. Thank you. And this is what compassion accomplishes. Today, we have the honor of having with us Detective Sherry Cameron with the Boise Police Department. Hello. How are you today? Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you have been... Working with domestic violence for over 20 years now I in have. cases and situations. Why don't we just start with what is your why? What got you originally passionate in wanting to get the awareness out there and the prevention and being able to get people on the other side and give them that hope? So as you mentioned, I've been working in along the lines of domestic violence for over 20 years. I started with Boise Police Department uh, almost 23 years ago. So originally I'm a native, um, I'm from the Boise area. So that kind of drove me to Boise Police as uh, law enforcement. Um, I knew that I wanted to get into law enforcement and being a native, I really wanted to give back to my community first and foremost, being from here. I graduated from Boise State University. So my ties are really deep rooted here. Uh, my children are from here. I went to school here, graduated from here. Uh, my family's from here. Um, so I really, really wanted that, that sense of public and, and community. Additionally, um, my drive for domestic violence um, goes back to my family as well. I grew up in a domestic household. And I remember as a child um, having that sense of nobody protecting me right that feeling of my younger siblings and (laughs) uh, wanting to protect them Um, i was older um, and being young not being able to protect them yeah and i also remember as a child not having a voice during that time period um i don't think that we really understood domestic violence. No. I also don't think that we understood what it did to children. And I don't think that we understood the implications and the impact that it had on a community. It was viewed as a private matter. It was something that happened behind closed doors. Yeah. And I think that quite frequently we swept it under the rug. I think that in general and not by any ill will, on law enforcement, but a common response was, you need to keep it down. And if we come back here, then somebody's gonna go to jail. Mm -hmm. And kids could be cowering in a corner. 
and frequently kids were battered. And they grew up thinking that this is how it is. This is what it is. This is, this is okay. And unfortunately, that cycle continues when kids are not protected. And we truly have two victims. Mm-hmm. Our, our truest victims are children and elderly. Those are the ones that can't fight for themselves, and they're the ones that need protected. And that background stuck with me. It's never left me. And I brought that with me into law enforcement. And I remember the feelings that I had as a child that I don't want children to have. So getting into law enforcement, my passion for domestic violence, the education, the awareness, and being able now to protect those that can't fight for themselves. I will be that warrior for them. I will be there for them. And I will give those kids that voice. Well, and that was, that was what I was just about to bring up when you had said, you know, you felt like you didn't have a voice when you were in that situation. Um, I think anyone that, that deals with abuse, they feel that way. And they get to a sense of numb for themselves as an individual because they don't have a voice. It makes it easier not to fight or to disagree or to do anything that could escalate the situation. And by not having that voice, they don't have a voice in any way in against the abuse that they are that are that is inflicted upon them but then also no voice to reach out and and find the help that is out there the resources like yourself and with law enforcement with the wca there is organizations there's individuals that care and they know what you're going through there's no judgment involved there it is all about getting you getting your kids onto the other side with a healthy life and showing the hope that has diminished through what they've gone through. How did you feel that that first time after being through what you had been through and then as law enforcement when you had that first domestic violence case? the first time you had that situation, what was going through your mind and how you were feeling with your own emotions and then trying to help this individual? So starting in law enforcement, um, initially I wasn't in the position that I am now. Um, When I first started in law enforcement, I was a patrol officer. Um, So it's a little different response in patrol. Uh, You respond, you're the first responding officer. I did feel at that time that I was able to sometimes reach, you know, a victim and the children, um, but I wasn't able to stay on that case, if you will, because patrol is respond, write the report, the report is routed to, you know, detective units, um, and then it would go to the prosecutor, victim witness coordinators, advocates, services were supplied, but patrol is move on to the next call for service. You know, you're in, you're out. Um, And so it wasn't as fulfilling for me because I really wanted to work more with the whole family unit. Um, 
it 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 definitely drove that desire in me deeper that it wasn't enough. Um, right. It didn't feel like, especially as a department initially, that we weren't doing as much as what we could or should be doing. It felt as if we were operating in our community as a silo and that each of the partners in the community still were operating a little bit in a silo. And it didn't feel like that our community, we weren't collaborating as much as we should or could be initially. And again, this is, you know, 23 years ago. So I I had that deeper desire to build those relationships, uh, to work with the community Mm-hmm. So that we were wrapping victims and services, that we were doing more than, than what I was seeing. Eventually, back in 2012, uh, my department saw the need to have dedicated officer uh, or detective working with domestic violence, not in a patrol-only capacity, but those cases. And I actually was selected to do that. Which, very first officer. Yes, I'm the first detective that is solely focused on domestic violence. I actually get to work the cases, which personally for, for me was it was and still is the most rewarding job I've ever held in, in my 23 years on that department. There's a number of things I've done. I'm super proud of the work I've done, but the domestic violence, the work I do there is by far the most rewarding work. It is sometimes the hardest Mm-hmm. Um, emotionally, it can be very difficult. There's times that, you know, there's can be sometimes a little overwhelming. It can be emotionally draining, um, vicarious trauma. Um, but it is by far the most rewarding work that I do. And the relationships that I have built in the community and the collaboration and the teamwork and all of the processes that we've put in place to help victims and that core unit, which is the children and sometimes parents, the family members that are living in a house. And for those that are not aware, we have a very large refugee population in Boise. Yes. And so when you're talking of that core unit, you're talking cousins, uh, siblings, you know, you're, there's a large family unit that can be living there. So when you're dealing with that domestic violence victim, that can be a, a larger, you know, family unit that's living there. So we have to address all of that. Um, and, and as you discussed already, it's instilling hope back with that victim, the victim that's that's given up because it's been said over and over again to them that there isn't any hope, that they're right. worthless, that they don't have a lifeline out there. And the collaboration that we've done in this community in Ada County is through the WCA. It's the programs, it's the therapy, the counseling, it's everything that they have supplied and that ha- they have currently for victims to give them that hope, to give them their life back. And it's not just that victim, it's the, it's the children as well and giving them their life back, control back of who they are. Right. So Sherry, I want to say thank you for joining us today because I do know, well, I think I, I met you in 2013, I think actually when I joined the WCA, so that's about eight years ago, probably a year after you um, started 
in that first capacity. I think it was at an outreach event or something and you were passing out things and we were passing out things and letting people know about all the good things you were doing and the good things we were doing at the WCA. But I know you said you were out really late last night, even on a call and you're coming in hot, pretty, pretty hot off a call and pretty tired. And so even taking the time to come in today and share with us, um, this is just a sign of the really strong collaboration that I think we have between yourself and the work you do and um, and the police department and the WCA and the prosecutor's office and FACES and all of the other um, organizations as we come together in the safety net of services that we have been able to build over the years um, for victims and survivors and and their families and their friends as we continue to try to change the culture and the conversation, but reach out and let them know they're not alone and that there are services. Um, and you are on the forefront and you're seeing this every day. And I, I can't imagine what that's like. And I'm talking about it and reading about it. Like you said, you talk about it. I talk about it. We think about it. Like, how can we get get to people and let them know um, how I'm curious, um, how much... Uh, has it changed in over 20 years or 20 years you've been working with domestic violence in terms of the community and resources and, and what are your thoughts on that? I mean, just how much has it changed? It's changed tremendously. And that's a really good question. Um, Some of the changes that I've seen, even in case law, uh, when I first started, even um, let's hit a couple of really hot ones. Um, if you look at our case law, if you look at the the actual statute for domestic battery, the household membership, so 18918 is the domestic battery statute. And if you look at the household membership definition under that, the language of it itself, one of the bullet points, if you will, for household member, it lays out that you have to be either a current spouse, a former spouse, You have to have a child in common, regardless of your marital status. Or the last one is that you have to be living together in an intimate relationship and holding yourself out to be, and again, this is simplistic wording, but holding yourself out to be husband and wife. That's very antiquated language, if you will. Mm -hmm. And if you take that in black and white face value, to either of you in this room, does that leave out a whole lot of people? A whole lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yes, lot of it people. does. A whole lot of people. And can I say LGBTQ? Yep. They are left out of that. I can tell you in the beginning of my career, going to a homosexual relationship, I went to a lesbian relationship, walking in, knowing they were in an intimate relationship, living in that household together violent injuries knowing in the core of me that this was a domestic mm-hmm. and I had to ask if there was a victim and they had to press charges because it didn't fall in domestic There's nothing you could do we had to have a victim because that did not fit the statute now that's again right 23 years ago where have we come this day we have a Supreme Court case that came down, State v. Schultz, that addressed that. God bless that case because that case addressed the intimate relationship part of our statute and opened the door for LGBTQ saying, no, it's the intimacy of the relationship. Domestic is about power and control. Mm -hmm. That is in intimate relationships. And so it addressed that. 
So we now have the opening of that. So that is a significant change for us. Yeah. That's a huge change in my career. The second one is strangulation. As a patrol officer, I can tell you, I will never forget going to a call in patrol uniform, standing over a woman. She is sitting down on concrete as she's describing to me what her husband had done to her. I have my notebook. I'm taking notes. I remember asking her what happened next. And she said, he put his hands around my neck and he squeezed. And I asked her to lift her head up. Can you lift your chin? And I remember bending over, looking at her neck. And I said to her, I don't see anything on your neck. What happened next? I completely dismissed strangulation. Why? I didn't know anything about strangulation at that time. We did not know the lethality of strangulation, which I will tell you now, I'm an instructor on strangulation and I go to every training I can on it to get trained. I'm looking uh, for those marks. I am educating our patrol officers. I train in the state of Idaho because I do not want law enforcement to ever fill, (coughs) bless you, inadequate ever on strangulation. I don't want them to feel how I did then. Now, the change we have with education and unfortunately through time, through women that have died, we've learned we're not going to see marks on strangulation. Women have died with no external signs of strangulation, but have died from strangulation. Because of what we've learned, we now have a strangulation statute in Idaho, which is always a felony crime because of the lethality of it. So we've had changes in my career, not only in law, but the other thing that we've seen is, as I mentioned earlier, based off of you know my background, giving kids that voice, we're using forensic exams of children. Children are witnessing, not only are they witnessing crimes, they're witnessing mom and dad, boyfriend and girlfriend, or mom with boyfriend, they're witnessing this stuff happen. We also know that children are being injured during it. We also know that because of what kids are seeing, that they have a higher propensity of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, becoming sexually promiscuous. We know, too, that they can be suicidal. We know that they can be bullied in school. We know that they can be cutting themselves. We know that they can also protect mom or dad and become involved in that violent act. And because we know this statistically and through education, we have a duty and responsibility to make sure that those kids are okay and provide services to them. And so we have incorporated through St. Al's and St. Luke's, through Faces of Hope, we have the CARES program, and I utilize that on every case I work when kids are involved. And I make sure that the social workers are doing CARES on those kids so that kids are are understanding that this is not okay and that we are addressing what their needs are. The CARES program is fantastic. It is an awesome program. We also have forensic exams for victims at Faces of Hope. 
so that the victims actually have the opportunity to have a nurse. Law enforcement is not present in those. And that's an opportunity for a victim to be able to give historical information to a nurse who will document what has happened in that relationship. That's males and female victims. It is not just females. We know there are male victims out there. So for you males listening, please, please, please come forward. Please. I need you to come forward and report as well. You are taken seriously. Um, So this is an opportunity in these DV forensic exams for them to tell the story, to have the injuries documented, to have them photographed. There's victim services as well. We also are using crisis counselors, and I fully am a, a believer in and an encourager of counseling. Um, these are traumatic incidences for victims and for families, and it does not matter if a victim has been abused one time or 300 times. Each incident is traumatic. Yeah. And Individuals that live in an abusive environment with an abuser needs to be able to process through that. So we have counselors available, and I also have, uh, we have started to use uh, our civil attorneys, and those attorneys are imperative in a lot of these where we've got victims that have children, potentially they are in that relationship or staying because potentially they've been threatened that they won't ever see the kids again or that maybe they don't have some rights to the children. Uh, Maybe the children aren't biologically theirs. Um, There's all kinds of threats when it comes to the children. And so those civil attorneys are very helpful uh, to give that guidance. Um, And they also can help victims obtain civil protection orders, possibly um, temporary placement of of the children with the victim until we can address more permanent things. So those are a lot of the changes that we've been able to incorporate through um, utilizing again, our whole community. And those are done through um, various resources in this community. This community has been honestly a rock star at being able to put this stuff together. And those are all of the things that I have seen in the last 23 years. That's amazing. I want to say really quickly, I think Sherry's talking about civil attorneys uh, accessing those. If anybody's seeking some of those services, those are available, I think, through Faces of Hope Victim Center and those CARES, uh, the CARES program and those exams are all through Faces of Hope Victim Center. The WCA has some has case management and counseling and support groups and uh, court advocacy that uh, has some safety planning and those types of services. You can find out about that at WCABoise.org and by calling the hotline. Um, referrals go back and forth between those two agencies that work very closely together. There's also other community agencies and organizations out there. There are a lot of services available. Um, If you're out there and you're listening and you need some help, um, please reach out. You're not alone. Uh, And like Sherry said, if this has happened once or 300 times, you're not alone and you don't deserve this happening to you. Well, and detective Cameron, when we were talking earlier before we got onto the podcast, um, we were talking about all of the work that you do talking to law enforcement and uh, judicial sources and all of that throughout the state to make sure that these services are available and that everyone's on board with these same protocols that have been so effective that you've seen. 
Yes, I do. I actually do a lot of training and I, I don't just do first responders either. Like you mentioned, judicial as well. Um, I work a lot with the judges. I work with probation and parole. Um, I've also branched out with the domestic violence evaluators, law enforcement. I've done some work with the paramedics. When we talk about the strangulation, it's, it's super important that strangulation victims. And if you are listening, if you have ever been choked, placed in a chokehold, strangled, if somebody has used an object around your neck, if they've placed a body part anywhere on your neck, please make sure that you get medical follow-up as soon as possible. If you do not report to law enforcement, at least at a minimum, go in and tell a medical provider and please, please be evaluated. You may not have any external signs, but there can be internal swelling, there can be internal injuries or damage, and you can actually have long-term, short-term consequences that can lead to death. Please go and be evaluated. I do, um, as we mentioned as well, I do community trainings. I've been asked to present at some conferences. There are community uh, attendees, and I do believe in education of the entire community. I want people to understand more about strangulation. It is, a, like I mentioned, a newer strangu- a strangulation is a newer statute in Idaho. And it is harder for people to understand that lethality. Part of that is TV and movies because it is so lethal. Our brains want to see huge injuries and marks on someone. And it's hard when we don't see photos of ginormous bruises around the neck. Um, We think, well, it must not have happened. Somebody can be strangled to unconsciousness in a matter of seconds. And when you are unconscious, your brain is actually not able to formulate any memory. So your victim is not able to recall facts or information because they can't formulate the memory. So it is harder for a jury sometimes to believe it, hence education being so incredibly important. Stalking is another one that I do a lot of education in the public about because stalking is another one that can be very difficult to prove. It's quite frequently done via electronic methods, Mm -hmm. cyber stalking on computers. Um, We also know that following tracking devices are used Uh, But the community, a lot of community um, at large have a harder time believing that stalking is really a bad crime, that the offender is heartbroken, loves, you know, that they're just love struck, they'll get over it. It's really not that bad. Um, Why should they, you know, be punished? You know, they'll eventually stop. Um, unfortunately, it, individuals that stalk someone else, it's not about being heartbroken. It's about being obsessed and it is about power and control, which goes back to domestic violence. And unfortunately, if you do watch the news and you are familiar with a lot of our more recent murder suicides that have occurred, those are actually stalkers. Those are individuals that stalked their exes and then went over and murdered 
their exes, and in some cases, the current spouses. Stalkers are very dangerous, very scary individuals. Yes. And stalking by nature is one of the most emotionally damaging crimes that can be done. A victim is in a perpetual state of fear. They never know what is going to happen. So I am a huge advocate of education on stalking to the community so that people understand what that crime is. Now, if someone is wanting to get more information, is wanting to be educated more on any of the topics that we've talked about, where can they go? As Chris has mentioned already, there is a lot of information that they can obtain either through the Women and Children's Alliance. Um, So please go in. They can talk to them as well as Faces of Hope. Those are the two places that I would recommend going in to talk with them. There's brochures there. They can get information. There is also, if they don't want to go in, they can get online as well. And there is a lot of resources on strangulation and stalking and domestic violence online. There's a lot of different national sites where they can pull information and download if they want to sit at home and and learn about it on their own. Um, Additionally, through WCA and Faces of Hope, they can find about, um, I know we're starting to open up um, more. There's going to be some in-person training eventually there are some zoom trainings that will be coming up as well so those are events and trainings that they would be able to either participate in or attend as that starts to open but i would encourage individuals listening if you do want more education please attend those trainings those are opportunities for you to ask questions interact and to find out more about this and how you too can spread that information to other individuals. Well, Detective Cameron, I, I hope you will be back on with us again. Soon. I think she has to be. I think yes. we've got more questions for her and she's Absolutely. got a lot more to offer. We haven't even asked her what she does in her free time. And I personally know <laughs> that uh, she uh, she is uh, she's I'm, I'm, I'm a fan girl. I told you earlier, I think she's pretty amazing at her day yes. job. And, and uh, she does a lot for our community in her off time. And we just appreciate her coming in. And I, I do hope she'll come back because I do think she can educate us a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I want to have some conversations with her about when people can choose to report and when they can't. And we want to talk about sexual assault, um, forensic exams and kits. And there's a lot of things that we should be talking about because I know um, our audience members will want to hear and education and knowledge is power and starting conversations are power and making a change in our community is what we are here to do. So uh, Sherry, thank you so much for coming. I hope we'll have you back here real soon. Thank you. I would love to be back. And all of the links that we've been talking about today, all the phone numbers you can find in the description right below. So please reach out and just know there is always hope. And you are not alone. Absolutely. And we look forward to talking again on the next edition of What Compassion Accomplishes. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Compassion Accomplishes. Again, if you or someone you know has experienced domestic abuse, dating, or sexual violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or the WCA's 24-hour hotline 208-343-7025.